Look, I, I think if the Monero community takes any length of time going through some of our documentation, they'll clearly see that like we're not really trying to compete directly, if that makes sense. Like we're not just another four. Welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Michael Lockie, and today for this Crypto Convos, I'm going to be joined by Simon Harmon of Loki. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Michael. How are you? I am excellent. I am excellent. So I think it was pretty interesting how we ended up having this conversation. Um, I've been mentioned to check Loki out for a little while through a couple of our Discord members, a couple of the regulars that listen to our show, and then also I was contacted by a uh, a mutual friend of ours that decided, hey, like, let's get this scheduled. Let's go ahead and move on here. So I feel like this has kind of been a long time coming. I'm happy to have you on board and I'm looking forward to kind of getting to know you guys a little bit, learning about where you guys have come from and what you're kind of looking towards in the future. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, the first thing that kind of came to mind that I wanted to touch on um you know, the, the actual word Loki that is chosen as the name for your project, um, that, you know, there's probably some different ways you could go into defining it or different ways you could go into, you know, what made you choose that name? I guess I kind of just wanted to start off with what did it kind of mean to you or what does it mean to the, the close members of the team as far as the message that you want to send out? Well, when we first kicked this project off, um, the name was the big roadblock for us, as it is for so many, you know, startups and entrepreneurs and all sorts of people out there trying to come up with a name for something, you know, bands and everything else. We had the whole whiteboard thing going, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, in hindsight, not that great names. Um, uh, but uh, Loki came about as just sort of one of those ones that ended up on a whiteboard. No one really knows who put it there. Um, but because we are obviously a project that's focusing very highly on privacy and, and security and everything else. Um, we thought that choosing a name that has a few different meanings behind it that are all sort of related to it was appropriate. So Loki, uh, for those that aren't in the know, is the name of a Norse god, although he's technically a giant, uh, basically a character from Norse mythology who is sort of a shapeshifter. He's a bit of a trickster. He creates sorts of problems and stuff. But we like the name because trickery is actually... Um, sort of the way some of the encryption techniques we use work in our system. So when you're talking about ring signatures, that's basically all trickery. Um, to others, not so much, but um, we thought that was a, a cool parallel to draw. But also, it's just a good pun, you know, low-key. It's, it's private, it's low-key, you know. So yeah, that, that's no. sort of the, <laughs> I, the reasoning behind it. I, I saw that little, uh, the low-key reference on the website, and I really enjoyed it. Um and I also wanted to just make a comment on, you know, naming a startup is, it is like, that's kind of a, an overlooked, you know, piece of the puzzle. We actually have a segment on our news, our Friday flagship, where we kind of cover the news where, um, we don't mind talking about any of the products we talk about. We don't mind going into discussions of, you know, their marketing. Is it good or bad or this name that they chose? And, and often, even though there's only three hosts on the show, we often disagree about the choosing of the name or the, the image that the marketing is, is necessarily delivering. And that just goes to show you that, you know, we're just three people. We're going to disagree on it in a very small sample. It's, it's kind of complex. I, I did, I never really realized how difficult that was going to be until we ended up having to do it ourselves too. Oh, it's such a huge rabbit hole. I mean, you, you can get stuck for days trying to decide a name. And a lot of people 
especially if it's like a one or two man band, they, they choose these real outlandish names that they end up changing later on down the track if it's not working out. Like it's, it's a real, there is something at stake, but I think like once you get above a certain size, like who thought, who behind Uber thought choosing a German word that means above was a good idea to describe ride sharing? It's yeah. just, you're absolutely right. It blows my mind. And now but that the branding's is the, now so strong. That's what just to what it is, you know? Yeah, that is what ride sharing is. It's Ubering, right? Like Lyft is you know, a competitor in America. I'm not sure how many um, ride shares there are in Australia, but it, it's funny that something will eventually become the name for the entire industry. Yeah. It's like Google. Like what the <laughs> hell is that word? <laughs> when your when your word becomes a verb, that's a good sign, I would imagine. <laughs> Fantastic son, but I'm not sure people will be Lokiing anytime soon. Well, I mean, there's lots of ways you could Loki because, you know, one of the things I noticed, uh, it is a hybrid. That's a really good verb, actually. To Loki, that just that works to me. Um, yeah. So I, I I like that you have a hybrid proof of work and you you just you describe proof of stake as proof of service, which I understand uh, kind of off the top of my head why you might choose those differentiators. Um, why don't we go into the, the consensus mechanism that you guys have chosen? And I think that's another huge like bottleneck that, you know, a lot of these early crypto projects are, are experiencing. What made you decide, you know, to do a hybrid service? Well, I think the, the core, uh, the backbone of our project is dependent on these service nodes. Like that's really where all of these ideas kicked off from. It's like some of us had some interest in masternodes, um, but we really didn't think they were being utilized to their full potential. So we started experimenting with ideas around how we can design tests to basically make it such that we can uh, get these masternodes to do something and have to prove that they are doing that thing to the rest of the network. And thus you can get them providing services that are off-chain as well instead of just like you know, faster transactions or whatever else has been ideated. Like We're, we're talking about like storing messages, routing arbitrary data, that sort of thing in, in specific ways that can be tested by the rest of the network. Um, so that's sort of the core of our project. So without the proof of service part, we would be quite a boring point, I, I would say. But the proof of work thing, like the, I think the bigger question is why don't we just go proof of stake all out 100%? That, that was kind of the point that I was trying to make. And um, the, the reason is, is because as it currently, well, especially when we started, it wasn't apparent to us how that would work um, using the CryptoNote protocol, which is the protocol that we use based on Monero, um, Bitcoin, that sort of uh, stream of things, that legacy. Um, there's a bunch of privacy properties around that that weren't clear to us how we were going to create this entirely um, stake-driven model that where the nodes create the blocks. Um based on their stake. Um, and there were a bunch of questions around, still around now, about how how secure that really is, how decentralized it really can be. And I think as time goes on, we, we're becoming more aware of the fact that, well, I have been much more aware of the fact that, yes, there may be an issue with wealth centralization. There is sort of is anyway in proof of work, especially where you have dedicated hardware. For example, you have a, a specific algorithm that you use that your miner, uh, like your ASIC, is specifically designed for, it, and that sort of locks people in uh, based on how much wealth they pump into those miners is the proportion of uh, the coin they'll get back out through proof of work. So I think that this already happens to a large extent anyways, and I think 
a, a huge elephant in the room that no one seems to really want to address in the proof of work world is the pooling issue. No one's really come up with a good solution about how to circumvent this. I personally don't think there is one. I think it's just one of those things that is unavoidable. Because of the way the pooling is panned out, most coins you have, in our case, I think it, you could argue like three or four one of which is like very dominant. Like you, you immediately get this credo distribution going in small coins where you have one pool that's extremely large and then it sort of tapers off from there. In some of the larger networks, you have you know a handful, like you can count it on two hands, the amount of pools that actually mean anything. And that's a real issue. That This, this claim that proof of work is somehow inherently more decentralized than proof of stake, I find to be false just straight out of the gate based on that alone. Um, but we are actually looking at evolving our um, consensus mechanism through time as well for two reasons. One one thing we're currently looking at is uh, something called checkpointing, which is a proposal that Key Jeffries, our CTO, um, sort of thought about over the last few months, wrote a paper on it and put it out there, and we all thought it was awesome. Uh, but Dash also put their paper out, their exact version of the exact same thing, like, literally 12 hours before Key was going to publish his, so he was pretty salty about that. Um, <laughs> that sounds just like very unlucky. Extremely unlucky, but <laughs> at least it shows that we're not the only ones thinking about it and it's actually probably a good idea and there's someone else's ref- uh, implementation we can reference to check that we're not doing anything ridiculous. Uh, but essentially the, the idea is because you have this uh, node network, service node network or master node network or whatever you want to call it in your particular ecosystem, um, they have a separate uh, authority model to that of the miners. And so you can create this parallel chain almost where it's not really a parallel chain. Sorry, I'm getting caught up in things we've noticed about this particular design. But essentially what happens is um, every few blocks, um, you can get this group of nodes to come to an agreement about the current state of the chain and write something called a checkpoint. Um, and essentially you write the consensus rules in such a way that you can't do blockchain reorganizations above a certain number of checkpoints, maybe two or three. And the net result of this is if everyone's following the checkpointed blockchain, it now really doesn't matter if someone is 51%ing the network because they're only ever going to be able to do reorganizations down to a, f- a handful of blocks. And that's really not going to be useful to anyone. Um, so it, effectively it, uh, significantly reduces the uh, the chance of malicious hash attacks of various kinds, whether that's double spending or anything else. So it essentially removes a lot of the drawbacks of having this pooling system with uh, proof of work, which is especially pertinent for small coins such as us. Um, uh, the interesting thing about this is that this checkpointing, this system of checkpointing runs concurrently alongside the blockchain and also forms a sort of... Uh, it's kind of like its own blockchain in that it's stringing to get the data in, in an immutable way. In a, in um, a reliable way that. too, right? And that's the, what I'm yeah, hearing. Exactly. What I'm hearing from you is that if you have something that even small mining pools, you know, if they have something they can reliably use as a checkpoint every few blocks, then it, like I, yeah. I totally understand your point where it's much easier to keep everybody kind of organized. Well, that's right. Like you can't sit there if you have 60% or 70% of the network hash rate and mine like a string of 20 blocks off in one direction and withhold them and then suddenly dump them on the network right. when it suits you because you can only do that for four blocks, for example. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, everyone else is just chugging along as if nothing's happened. So 
it keeps everyone honest. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that solution quite a bit. And um, one one of the things that I thought of right away, I like the idea of the service nodes because I would imagine that this is going to help quite a bit when it comes to scalability. Do you tend to agree with that? Mm, not so much. I think not it's- so much. Not so much. What we're actually doing is adding more bandwidth and more data mm. that has to go through each and every node. Um, gotcha. so, no, we're not helping scalability, but we are helping security. And I think security is definitely something that you should always strive for above and beyond scalability. Absolutely. Because without security, there's no point. However, acknowledging that there are other things we can do with this checkpointing system to uh, aid in its utility. So something else that we've been considering doing in the last week or so is... We need a way for someone that is new to the Loki net. Uh, I'm not sure if I've explained Loki net yet. I don't think I have. Um, but essentially, we have this. We have a way that people can connect to the service node network and use it to route arbitrary packets of data in such a way to keep themselves anonymous online. Um, and the issue is, though, is if I come online um, and I connect to a few nodes using the DHT, I, I need a way of knowing that the DHT is actually giving me real nodes um, mm-hmm. that are actually on the blockchain. So what we are thinking of doing is putting in a call to the daemon where uh, you can ev- every checkpoint, basically the service nodes that are doing that checkpoint will also include a hash of the DHT. So if you make a call to the blockchain and you go, okay, what's the latest hash of the DHT, you should be able to compare with your, um, with your own DHT that you've been given by various nodes and, and verify whether or not the network state that you're currently looking at resembles what you're actually using. So it's another security feature that comes in with checkpointing. That's, that sounds very interesting. I, I just want to give you a brief background on us. Um, we kind of started this podcast as if the, we wanted it to be the podcast we wanted to find when we got into crypto. And, you know, we don't have a development background and we ended up kind of starting this show because we want to you know, we want to learn and we want to, you know, meet people like you and, and kind of express your vision and, and help people see, you know, where this is going and, you know, try to prevent people from getting into scams and whatnot. And um, one of the things I liked about that description you just gave me, my mind kind of went to a place where I feel like you're creating rules for this virtual road and like – Exactly. The the roads are so abstract that a lot of the words that you said to me, I didn't really understand. However, I understand the message that you're trying to deliver. And, and I like that this space is creating a digital world that is, is allowing transactions and security and privacy and, and all of these things that actually matter. And it's allowing them to actually, you know, implement them in a safe, secure way. And, and that's why we like having these types of conversations. That was a really, really interesting story. Thanks, man. I, I kind of feel the same. I mean, I, I love podcasts as well. I love being on them and I especially love listening to them. Like, I don't know. I can probably consume about 20 hours of audio a week without blinking an eye. All right. Um, then that's but, a great segue for us. Why don't you give me your top three favorite podcasts, crypto or not crypto related? Why don't, why don't you... Shouts. Well, we'll start with my favorite crypto podcast. Um, my favorite crypto podcast has to be the Zero Knowledge podcast um, because they basically what they do is every couple of weeks or so um, and the topics they focus on are usually privacy focused, which is pertinent to me, obviously. But uh, essentially what they do is they interview someone smarter than me every couple of weeks. And <laughs> I get to listen to them and absorb their information, which is really very useful. 
So I'll start listening to that in about three years when I'll feel comfortable <laughs> being at the people smarter than you level. <laughs> well, that's the thing. People are smarter than me are uh, capable of avoiding a lot of jargon. So like, there's a lot of really complex topics like you know, bulletproofs and um, other things like ZK snarks and that sort of thing that they can abstract away to the point where it's like, it's pretty plain English. Like you can understand basically everything that they're saying, only knowing minimal things about how Bitcoin works. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend checking that one out. I, I think um, I think actually a really good podcast uh, episode to start on if you're interested in that would be the Bulletproofs episode. The Proofs episode? Uh, Bulletproofs. Bulletproofs. Yeah. Uh, that's just one that sticks out in my mind as something that I really enjoy. Um, other podcasts I listen to, I like um, – uh, I'm a bit long-time listener to Hello Internet, um, if you know that one, with uh, CGP Gray and um, the guy that does Computer File and, and uh, Number File and all that on YouTube. Um, that's been a big one for me over the years. But uh, I, I listen to a lot of, like, um, Gimlet Media productions as well. Like, I really enjoy uh, – Jesus, what's it called? Um, internet one. Come on, man. I can remember this. Hold on. Let me have one. Oh, no problem at all. I, I, I can assure you we're definitely going to try to reach out to Zero Knowledge Podcast. That sounds like something right up our alley. And we like to do panel discussions with content creators and other things. And that's that's something I could definitely see us getting involved in. Yeah, man. Um, Reply All is one of the one I'm thinking Reply of. All? Fantastic podcast. Okay. Absolutely amazing. All right. So Zero Knowledge Sorry. Podcast, Hello Internet, and Reply All. Is that what you said? Yeah, I reckon um, just... Just about anyone would like Reply All. It's very eclectic, um, and the topics are kind of related to the internet, but there's all sorts of wacky stories and stuff that's going on there. It's great. Excellent. All right, so there was a interview that I watched where you kind of went into some details about the pros and cons of other messaging services, such as Telegram, Signal, so on and so forth. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, like – what do you want people to know about those types of services? I, I first and foremost want people to know that Telegram is not secure. I mean, people like to think it is secure. They think it's a private messenger. But in reality, unless you're doing a secret chat, everything that you type is in plain text and it's tied to your mobile phone number. So that is by no means secure. And sure, you may say what you will about the people behind Telegram some, a lot of people think that they're like um, you know, trustworthy people because, you know, you left Russia and it's now in Dubai or something along those lines. But really, at the end of the day, like when you're sending stuff in plain text, it's it's not secure. It's just not. Um, so forget that. And also, when you are doing a secret chat, the encryption library that they use, something that they brewed up at home and it's not verified in the slightest. So oh, that's really? also something worth considering. A lot of the security community is very skeptical about Telegram and its security properties, mostly because it doesn't have any. Um. <laughs> so I noticed right away, it, my big tip off was that I couldn't do a secret group chat. And that, like, as a user, to me, that kind of put up a red flag. Um, and I also. Well, the reason like you can't do a secret group chat because it's actually like a very hard thing to do cryptographically. And Telegram is just like, eh, can't be bothered. Because the, the thing what was is, the very is the first thing you said there. I'm sorry, I missed the first part of your your reply to me. The um, the reason that they don't do secret group chats is because it's actually technically difficult to do that, and okay. the user experience is actually inherently going to be worse. Gotcha. Every time someone joins or leaves a group, the whole the remainder of the group has to reset their session key because it's a complete new session, basically. 
more or less. That's, gotcha. that's a good way of describing it. So if you've ever used the WhatsApp group chat, you probably noticed that there's some funny things going on there when you join stuff. You can't see all the messages unless it gets forwarded to you, that sort of thing. That's all based on the, the what's going on in the background with right. the uh, internet encryption. Interesting. Um, but it, it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, Signal and WhatsApp have been doing it for a while now. Like, it's, it's not that hard gotcha. to tell around. But I, I, I'm not that fussed that Telegram isn't doing it because if they were, it would be lulling people into a false sense of security, I think. Hmm. We also had another, uh, like during our, one of our recordings recently, we had a thought and I feel like, I, I feel like Telegram raised a tremendous amount of money in NICO at some point. And I feel like after that happened, it already, it just kind of like everybody forgot that they raised a bunch of money. So we, we've been meaning to go back and do some, uh, digging around as to what that fundraising was like. It was it was a lot of money from them. Really. I feel like it was over a billion, and like yeah, I think <laughs> that just seems so unnecessary for a. It was already a finished product. I felt like, and yeah, yeah. Well, there was this, there was this coin that was going to happen. There was like a hundred and fourteen page white paper that was full of very outlandish stuff. Like seemed like a lot of fluff to me, but I, I I'll be honest, I didn't really read into it right. too much. But you know what? What's happened? With them fading into the background with this coin is, in my opinion, probably not a bad thing, even if you're interested in the coin, um, purely because it means that they're probably developing this somewhere in the background and not making too much noise about it, so there's no pressure to rush it or you know gotcha. make something half-baked. I think that's something, um, personally, I think that's something that uh, crypto investors need to be more willing to accept. Like, just because it's crypto, it doesn't mean things take less years to build and perfect. You know, any any app is the same. Any software company, any idea like that um, is is the same, and it's perhaps even worse in the blockchain space, just because it's so back end heavy and often very complicated with lots of applied cryptography. And there's there's a lot going on in in these in this right, software. Right, right. I, I didn't want to people give the projects the space to actually be able to do it properly. So this is why you know you get someone does an ICO. And then the product, like the initial product they released six months down the line is like pretty terrible and no one really wants to use it. Um, but the only reason that they released it six months down the track is because they wrote it on their roadmap and they feel pressured because right. the market would react negatively to them if they didn't push it out. So, you know, there, there is that. And we're under that pressure as well. Like we, we put out a roadmap when we did our ICO, which so far we've followed, if not beaten, which has been excellent. But I... I can see that there are things that can happen to our product development that will mean that things that are a lot slower than people might imagine them to be, and thus they will be disillusioned, disenchanted, and so on and so forth. So it's going to be a real struggle to keep those sort of people happy, I think. Not that our product's going to be any shittier at the end of the day. It's right. just going to take... I, I think, um, like, for example, I'll give you a good example, right? We said that we'd have our messenger out by Q1 2019, which is going to happen. We will have our messenger out. However, it's only going to be on desktop, um, which is something that most people will react negatively to. Right. And there's just nothing we can do about it, though, because we cannot convert the Signal mobile, both the Signal mobile apps on in their native languages to do all the logic that the desktop one does with all of the sharing features and everything else that you come to expect that you don't really think about when you're using them. But for example, when you have um, WhatsApp on your phone, you know how you do that QR code thing to mm -hmm. get it onto the web version? Yeah. That, that What's going on in the background there is actually a really cool piece of logic, but that all has to be written and, and adapted to a mm -hmm. serverless system. Like 
Loki doesn't have servers. We can't just pull messages down from somewhere because they get deleted after 24 hours. So we actually have to develop this peer-to-peer system where my phone can talk to my desktop without actually knowing where each other are on the network right. to preserve privacy and be able to forward the history between them and the contacts and everything else and do all that syncing all without a centralized server, which is like, that's a whole new feature set that we have to build. So if, what I'm saying is like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into these products that make them really, really good user experience wise, but take a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I did not intend in any way to suggest that, uh, that the team here cares about prices or necessarily, or that we don't understand that every single, you know, roadmap can't be met because, you know, we actually really try to examine the pros and cons of every situation. And when something comes up, you know, okay. In, in crypto, there's a lot of trade-offs, right? So like what you just suggested, um, the way I heard you, the, the desktop version is a lot more powerful and it probably is a, a little more difficult for the phone to communicate with the computer. And what that kind of means to me is that like we've been building computers for a lot longer and they are a lot more adaptable and they have a lot more programming languages and they're a lot smarter. And, and it's, not, it's not actually that at all. It's, it's just, really- um, it's just the fact that we started building the desktop app first. Hmm. Like we could have done the mobile apps first. That would have gotcha. meant that it's just because um, the problem with mobile is not that they're less powerful or anything like that. While that's true, that's not actually important for this app because it's literally just like, you know, a chat window. It's nothing, mm-hmm. it's nothing huge, right? The problem with it is, is that if you want to run something on Android or if you want to run something on iOS, they both have their own individual native language that you have to use in order for it to be um, high performance. Whereas if you're on a if you're on a normal computer, you can compile it in any which language you like, um, which is really nice. Right. I, I guess I suppose it, it's more customizable. I guess was was more the point that I was going with, and and that makes a lot of sense. And you know, I didn't even fully understand how many computer languages existed until getting into it's the crypto space, and <laughs> and you know, speaking to people like you who have a tremendous amount more experience with these is is always fascinating to me because. We don't know where this is going. And I keep having this thought in my head that everybody seems to be concerned about the phone, but I, I feel like the watch might be the future, right? Like people keep <laughs> wanting more and more and like marketers are going to give it to them. And, you know, why, why isn't everything going to sit on your wrist that it, it exists already? I, I don't know. I just feel like. There's you said anything about your wrist, man. What about in your head? Exactly, right? Like why but- have a screen at all? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Google Glass didn't go out very well, but maybe something no. else will figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think that's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the whole wearables and implants thing over the next twenty years or so. Absolutely, I, I don't think the smartphone's going anywhere anytime soon. Though I think it's a pretty. It's a very mature product. It's it like, is mature. That's a great way to put it. It's 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 getting fully ingrained. It's it has mass adoption, right? Yeah, everyone's got them, and yeah. like, but even if you look at the high end ones, like, there's very little difference between you know top of the line iPhone and like a three hundred dollar Android or even a hundred dollar Android. Right. Like functionally speaking, they can all more or less do the same thing with varying degrees of success. But like, the, what I'm saying is the smartphone format, like this little grass, glass, aluminium, plastic brick that sits in your pocket seems to actually work pretty well. Like no one, I don't think um, the watch thing, I don't know. That's going to be interesting to see what happens. But <laughs> that I, I, that I was very hypothetical. And 
I, I like to I like to think in in the future sometimes, and, and who knows where it's all going. Well, exactly. Uh, right. Exactly. So, is there anything off the top that you you feel like differentiates you from Monero other than your service nodes? And you know, is there anything that you wish the Monero community would know about you? Uh, me personally, or or, or, or the project, Loki, not necessarily you. <laughs> Look, I, I think if the Monero community takes any length of time going through some of our documentation, they'll clearly see that like we're not really trying to compete directly, if that makes sense. Right. Like we're not just another fork, you know, we're not just saying, Oh great, we have all the same privacy features in our coin, yeah, whatever. Um, I think as far as like the practicalities of the coin go, like we have a few features that stand out, some of which a lot of which we haven't developed yet, such as checkpointing is one with the um, proof of work security. Uh, another is Blink, where we're able to hold a record of um, transactions in the service node network temporarily, such that they can be confirmed within a matter of seconds, rather than you know, admit, like two minutes to get into a block and then go for a few confirmations. La 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 la. People may be familiar with this through Dash. Uh, it's called Instant Send. Mm-hmm. So we reckon we can do a pretty similar sort of thing in under five seconds. They say one second, but we're going to be conservative and say five. So um, that's pretty cool. Suddenly, um, Loki is not just a Monero clone anymore where you have this kind of slow cryptocurrency. It's now like fully, I call it um, private digital cash because it's, uh, it's, it's cash-like in the sense that it's untraceable and it's um, immutable and everything else. Um, but it's uh, private in the sense that you still have all the secure, uh, privacy features that come along with it. But it's cash-like as well because you can send immediately, whereas you can't do that most of the time. So suddenly face-to-face interactions become much more simple. It's like, oh, I want to give you some money for this. Cool. Just like do the thing on the app and then literally five seconds later, the transaction is done. And it's like it never happened from the outside world's perspective. And that's what we need, right? We need seamless transition. Yeah, I think if anyone wants a uh, currency to be adopted, like um, if you're talking about like, real-world face-to-face payments, if you can't do that quickly, then, you know, you're competing with, you know, tap-and-go systems and everything else. You need to be able to match that speed, which is very, very difficult, by the way. Um, I don't think that the system we're going to develop is going to be as user-friendly as, like, Visa tap-and-go, for instance, like, not even close, but it's comparable time-wise, you know. If you've got it set up, it'll be fine. Um, But also online payments become easier as well, like... uh, you know, when you click the checkout button and you can immediately send a transaction with the payment ID and it's confirmed just like that and the order goes through and then the shipping starts, for instance. It's going to be very nice to be able to hit the first domino and let the rest of them fall and complete whatever task you're trying to complete. Exactly right. You don't want to be waiting around 20 minutes for the transaction to go through. Like that's a big user experience thing across crypto that turns people off. Indeed. So uh, one of the final things I kind of wanted to touch on we are a big fan of governance systems, of funding and voting. And, you know, I really like that, you know, Loki had a foundation. Why don't you go into, you know, kind of what decisions were made there, how you guys uh, plan to utilize the foundation to make, you know, the network stronger? Well, I think the foundation is really useful in that it gives the, it gives Basically, in this day and age, like you can't just have a bunch of money floating around out there. Like some government somewhere is going to attribute it to someone, basically, and it's going to get taxed or something like that. Like I don't, I know that it has happened in the past, such where this hasn't been the case. 
But I think that's largely because at the time, you know, in the early 2010s, governments really just weren't looking at this. And who knows, like they may turn around in a few years' time and grandfather all of that and then suddenly someone's got a huge tax bill that they can't pay, um, which is entirely within uh, the power of these. Yeah, entirely possible. Like they have every legal right to do that, which is something I don't think enough people really put enough thought into. But So we needed this legal entity so the money could sit somewhere, right? We did... We basically did an ICO. We wanted to do a raise, but obviously we couldn't have it our own personal names. We needed some legal entity. And, you know, looking into the past, into other similar industry areas, you have these open source software foundations that have been operating for 30, 40 years now, like the Mozilla Foundation, uh, people who run Linux, um, people that run the Tor Network. Like all all of these projects are funded through these foundations which administer the funds correctly. Like the idea of a non-for-profit company has been around for a damn long time. So that's essentially what we aimed for and we got it basically. So we have uh, actually this is – I want to announce something on this podcast but I can't because I don't have clearance from our lawyers yet. Not a um, problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks for trying. It's very exciting. Essentially, um, we have – oh, man. I, I, I really want to say this, but I, I, I just I just can't. Not a problem. We, and it will make sense why. Out. Like once we once we announce it, like um, it'll make sense why I haven't been able to announce it. Hey, totally but, understand. Yeah, the foundation is effectively a very tried and tested way of having a system that is designed to benefit a specific cause or a specific objective, and having it structured in such a way that the people running it are held accountable both to each other and. Um, actually the government like if you don't meet your government standards then you know at least the community can know that the Australian government is auditing every charity every year and ideally that's what's going to be happening with the local foundation too that sounds very useful and yeah certainly we are big fans of recognizing that you know, governance plays a huge role in the mass adoption and the local governments as well. And I'm glad you pointed that out. Like, you know, we currently live in America and we know that crypto is very international, but we fear that, you know, the U.S. government is going to be so slow to, you know, catch up to all these things. They're going to fall very far behind other places that are more aware of, you know, all the safety and things that are involved in this. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, the U.S. really scares me. Like, um, there was a time when we were doing our ICO that I was nervous to go there just because there was so much uh, noise and hype about um, the SEC clamping down on ICOs and basically labeling everything for security, la, 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 la. Didn't end up happening, but at, at the time, February last year, that was a big concern for me. For sure, and, and there's so many other things going on. You don't need that on your plate as well. Exactly right. I mean, mean, we're all we're all in this for the purpose of we believe in what this larger global network is going to become, and you know whether you're working on Loki or whether I'm doing a podcast, like we can still make these connections because you know we understand that you know people need peer to peer transactions, people need global commerce, people need quicks, you know 
they need the ability to internet banking through, you know, crypto. And a lot of these nations are being helped along, you know, that way. You know, we're in this for the big picture. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, you understand and I understand that, you know, there's could be some roadblocks. There could be some particular governments that may want to overstep their bounds. And unfortunately, we are actors in a larger game. We, you know, the game theory dictates we have to act accordingly to the rules that are set in place. And, and I agree. I think, you know, having a foundation that, you know, focuses on that as well, I think is super important. Yeah. I mean, it just covers everyone's ass that's involved in the project, basically. That's why it exists. For sure, for sure. I think that's getting pretty close to wrapping it up. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I thought this has been an excellent conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before? I mean, I guess if um, people are interested in trying out some of the newer features of Loki, I'd, I'd come join our Discord just because that's where a lot of our more interesting community conversations happen. And uh, we're about to launch our public testing phase of LokiNet, which uh, we, you can currently join the, the, the ToyNet. Actually, you can come on and you can join our secret IRC channel that's buried within the IRC Loki channel. Net. Man. Yeah, man, old school. I'm old already school. in. I'm already in the Loki Discord, and I thought I had it figured out. But now you're telling me there's a secret IRC. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I am not equipped for that yet. But <laughs> we're going to do a blog post soon talking about the public testing phase and how people can come and jump in. But it should be pretty fun playing with some experimental software, like trying to torrent stuff over it and everything else. It's, it's going to be fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. So hopefully we'll be able to get in touch again down the road and be able to deliver some of your updates and look forward Absolutely. to where Loki yeah, is heading. Come back. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a fantastic conversation. All right. Thanks again. This is Mike Lockie with uh, the Crypto Basic Podcast. I was here with Simon Harmon of Loki. Thanks again for tuning in. Oh, 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 oh,